Martin Koldorf, PhD, is a world-renowned biostatistician in the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics at the Harvard Medical School. His research centers on developing new statistical methods for disease surveillance, including methods for the disease cluster evaluation and the early detection of disease outbreaks. His methods are used by the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. and almost every other country in the world. Recently, Martin has turned his prodigious analytical skills to the COVID-19 pandemic, serving on the CDC's working group to evaluate the safety of any future COVID-19 vaccine. He has also been a strong advocate for age-specific approaches to managing the spread of the disease, both in major newspapers in his native Sweden, as well as Spiked Magazine. Martin, it's truly a pleasure to speak to you today. Uh, very nice speaking to you, Dwayne. So you were recently quoted in Spiked saying, in epidemiology, our frustration is with anti-vaxxers. Most anti-vaxxers are highly educated, but still argue against vaccination. We now face a similar situation with anti-herders who view herd immunity as a misguided option strategy rather than a scientifically proven phenomena that can prevent unnecessary deaths. In your opinion, why is the herd strategy the correct one? I don't view herd immunity as a strategy. It is a scientifically proven fact that exists. And uh, by the nature of COVID-19, I believe that uh, whatever strategy we use, we will eventually reach herd immunity, either through a vaccine or through natural infection. So the key thing is really to uh, find a strategy that will minimize the number of deaths until we reach herd immunity. Why do you think there's been such a pushback in government against herd immunity? Uh, I don't know. That's a very good question. Uh, I think many in government are not familiar with uh, uh, epidemiology, uh, which is also true for many scientists in other fields. Uh, if we look at uh, the UK, for example, uh, there was a famous or infamous report from Imperial College where they uh, predicted many, many deaths from COVID-19. And I think that scared a lot of politicians. Uh, at the same time, um, the media and the politician ignored um, other infectious disease technologists like uh, Dr. Sunita Gupta at Oxford University, uh, who is an excellent epidemiologist working on infectious diseases. And she rightly pointed out that uh, we did not know uh, what these uh, parameters are. So there's no way of knowing if there'll be many deaths or fewer deaths. So basically what Imperial College did, they made a guess about the infection fatality ratio. And then they plugged that guess into their, their sophisticated mathematical model, uh, pretending that what came out was somehow... Uh, a valid estimate of death when it's really, if you put in a guess as a parameter in the model, you also get out a guess. So that was a purely guess from their perspective at a time when we didn't really know. But but it's interesting because if you look back at March, a couple of weeks ago, I had a podcast with Dr. Riley, who's another contributor to Spiked, and we discussed an article that had ran in Stat Magazine by Professor John Ioannidis at Stanford, where he'd done a complete statistical analysis of the Diamond Princess cruise line. And what's interesting there, and that's data that came from February and March, that was a hard endpoint. And if you extrapolated out that data, it showed that actually we would be seeing numbers sim more similar to what we're seeing now. But yet it seems that got ignored, even though that was hard data in exchange for people, as you rightly say, looking at say, the Imperial College epidemiological study, as well as other studies out of the University of Washington that look to be orders of magnitude incorrect upon reflection. Why do you think we didn't 
follow what was the hard evidence and went instead for the worst case scenario, as it were? Uh, I think there was also a lot of uncertainty in the estimate uh, that Unadidis uh, 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 came up with because uh, on the Diamond cruise ship, there was mostly an elderly population. And to find the infection fatality ratio, you have to look at the whole population. So I think uh, that uh, Sunita Gupta at Oxford did the right call and saying that at this time, we didn't know what the infection fatality ratio was. It could be lower, it could be, be higher. And that was an uncertainty. And I think it's sort of irresponsible, irresponsible of ethnologists to then claim that this is the number of deaths we're going to see, like Neil Ferguson did. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, the data was not only from the Princess cruise ship. There was data at this time from Wuhan that I looked myself. Sure. We, could con- we couldn't conclude there from what the infection fatality ratio was because there are so many people that were asymptomatic. So they were infected, but uh, they were not uh, symptomatic. So they were not known. It was not known how many people actually had been infected leading to the death that was seen in Wuhan. But if you look at what happened with Stanford then, who did their study, and then there was the epidemiological work that was done in Italy with the Red Cross, as we started seeing larger numbers, it turned out that, in fact, the infection rate was not nearly as high as people thought it was, and the disease was very, it wasn't equally spread heterogeneously through the whole age population. For example, in New York City, one third of all deaths in the United States, the death rate for people 18 to 45 is 0.01% or 10 per 100,000. For those 18 or under, the death rate statistically is zero per 100,000. If we look at a lockdown, then it's an experiment with a 99.99% false positive rate. Which approach should we be using then? You're pointing out the key thing we do know about COVID and which we knew a long time ago from the very first data coming out of Wuhan, and that is that there are enormously different risks by age groups. So New York City reflects that, the early data from Wuhan reflects that, and that has been seen across the whole world. So the risk is very, very high in those in the 70s and the 80s. It's high in the 60s. For people below 50, it's very low and it's almost non-existence in children. For example, I looked actually today at the National Center for Health Statistics. And since February 1st, there has been, I think there was 26 deaths in children under the age of 15. That can be compared with 100 deaths in influenza during the same period and over 100 in pneumonia as well as, I think, about six, 7,000 total deaths. So for children, this is uh, much less serious than influenza, but for the older people, it's a more serious disease than influenza. So what makes sense from a public health perspective is you want to protect those that are at highest risk. And that's the elderly, and plus a few other risk groups like people with diabetes. So it makes sense to do as much as we can to protect the elderly, uh, so that don't have to go to the supermarket. They can be deliver their food to their homes. Uh, we make sure that uh, they are not exposed in elder, in nursing homes, etc. While there's no reason to uh, specifically protect uh, young people, so they sh- should uh, continue to make sure that society keeps operating. So to close schools while not protecting nursing homes is the very opposite a strategy or what one should use. One should protect the nursing homes and keep the schools open. Of course, I live in Belgium and protecting the nursing homes is something that Belgium has not done particularly well. Uh, neither is New York. Unfortunately, we see a large clustering 
of death and mortality in those facilities. What do we need to do then practically to protect nursing homes? What would you recommend, doctor? Well, at this point, there are people who have had COVID-19. So, uh, I, and we know that either because they had a positive test uh, uh, for concurrent disease some time ago, or they had antibodies. So, these are the people that we should use to take care of those uh, elderly people in nursing homes that need care. So, they should be tested and uh, make sure that they, uh, they are immune so that they can spread the disease to uh, to the nursing homes. So Sweden, of course, has taken the approach of herd immunity and has paid a high price in the media. They've had a ton of criticism for that approach. But yet, if you look at the data, deaths are still falling at less than 25 per day right now. You've been a staunch advocate of the Swedish approach. Why do you think there's been such hostility towards it? And have you personally paid a political price for that opinion? Uh, well, Sweden also has some problems protecting the nursing homes in the Stockholm area. So it hasn't been a perfect strategy. But uh, Sweden never closed the elementary schools and the middle schools. And I think that was the right decision. They never closed the restaurant. They let people uh, go about their normal life uh, while uh, urging people uh, the over 70 to stay home and self-isolate. We can see, for example, if we look at the antibody tests, that places like Spain, parts of the U.S., and even Iran have higher proportion of elderly with antibodies than the working age people. So among the, the elderly, there are higher percentage of people with antibodies than there are among the working people, which means that they have been exposed a lot. As a comparison, when the Sweden did the test, the percent with antibodies was less than half in those above 65 versus the working age people. So therefore, it's clear that Sweden, to some extent, has succeeded in protecting the elderly while the disease has been spreading among those people who are at very little risk. I think that is the right approach because that will minimize the number of COVID-19 deaths by the end of this pandemic. And one problem, I think, in the media is that people are looking at the number of deaths right now. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a variety of reasons. But one is that if obviously there's more deaths in those places where the COVID has, has come and, and gone through the population. So we should really look at the number of deaths per infected. That is the sort of a better measurement on how successful a country is. And on that measure... With the very limited data we have so far, is doing, Sweden is doing, doing quite well. So to measure the number of deaths, uh, for example, right, right now, that's like uh, measuring a marathon race uh, by who is leading after one kilometer or after five kilometer. Uh, any decent runner could, I'm sure, be ahead of the pack after one kilometer if they wanted to, just by running very fast, but they're going to get exhausted and be way behind by the end of the the race. Right. And it's similar with an epidemic like COVID-19. Yes, it's possible to completely lock down and reduce the number of deaths. But at some point, you're going to have to remove the lockdown, and uh, then you're going to have to deal with the situation uh, at that time instead. But Martin, that requires political will and, and a certain amount of intestinal fortitude to take some political heat. Obviously, the Swedes have been willing to do that, it seems. Why do you think other politicians haven't had that ability or willingness? Is it just we're in election year, the media's on a frenzy? What do you think it is? Yeah, you're right. I mean, Sweden has taken a lot of heat, both internationally, but also domestically, not by 
by infectious disease uh, expert or epidemiologist, but uh, by other scientists who are not so well-versed in infectious disease epidemiology. I don't know the answer to your question. I think that's an interesting thing that political scientists and health policy uh, academics will have to study in the next few years. I think there will be very interesting uh, studies on that. Getting back to the discussion about the epidemiological studies that set policy, what it seems is you've had two camps. You've had the camps such as yourself. We mentioned John Ioannidis, certainly the work we did, the work Wilfred Riley did, where we grabbed hard data and ran statistical regressions and multivariate analysis. And and the people who looked at the hard data seemed to have been more accurate than those folks who ran the large epidemiological models. Why do you think there's been such a difference in approach? And why do you think that those hard models, the statistical models, were not adopted as policy? I think that there is uncertainty in many of these estimates of uh, infections, fatality rates in the R, R naught, in what is needed to receive herd immunity. We still do not know uh, what percentage is needed for herd immunity. We still don't know what the infectious fatality rate is, and we still don't know what R naught or current values of R. We're still not even terribly sure of the vectors either. <laughs> yeah, so there, and, and that's natural because this is a new disease, so there's very much we don't know. But the one thing we do know so clearly is this big difference in risk by age. So that's the uh, COVID-19 is a formidable enemy to deal with, a very serious disease and a terrible disease that's going to lead, has led to and will lead to many more deaths. But to fight it, we can't sort of put our heads in the sand and just try to run away. We have to utilize the weaknesses of our enemy. And the weaknesses of our enemy in the sense is that this disease is not a high-risk disease for people under age 50. So we have to use that fact to deal with it and let those under 50 generate the herd immunity that will then protect the elderly. There was, I think, consensus among ecologists that we had to flatten the curve. So that was sort of the first thing. And I think that was right because we can't overwhelm the healthcare system uh, to such an extent that we can't treat properly treat those people who get sick. So that was a problem in, in Italy and Spain, but in the rest of the world, at least in the Western world, uh, we have managed to flatten the curve sufficiently that the hospitals has not been overburdened. So that was a good thing. But there is now an attempt to sort of stamp out the disease, which I think is not going to be successful. So we have to now protect the elderly, but the longer it takes until we reach herd immunity, the harder it will be to protect the elderly because they have to self-isolate. So in Sweden, they have been self-isolating for about three months now. They're going to have to continue that for another couple of months. Uh, we don't know exactly how much until herd immunity is reached, but it's very hard for people in a place where, who, for the old people who have isolated themselves now for a few months, but we're nowhere even near uh, herd immunity, so they're going to have to self-isolate for even longer. They're almost starting from the beginning at that yeah, point. Yeah, and that's going to lead to more death because you cannot uh, self-isolate for forever because at some point you have to go to the doctor or you have to do this or you have to do that. So it's impossible to do it for too long without getting more negative uh, consequences. So there's sort of a balance. You have to do a little bit of social distancing to, to flatten the curve, and you have to do social distancing to protect the elderly. But you also have to let young people 
who are voluntarily willing to do so to uh, live their normal life and uh, that way we will get herd immunity. The other problem, of course, with herd immunity or with the lockdown is that it's not only problems with COVID-19, there are also an untold number of other health effects from the lockdown. Yeah, of course, cancer screening, cardiovascular screening, uh, stress. We've seen in an article recently in the San Francisco Chronicle that talks about they're seeing higher suicide rates than they are COVID-19 rates. Are you seeing things emerging like this in your data at Harvard? Uh, I haven't looked at the, the suicide rate specifically, but obviously that's just the tip of the iceberg of any other mental health problems. But it's, uh, it's so much bigger than uh, the mental health. I mean, you mentioned cancer screening. That's one thing. But unlike COVID-19 and unlike suicides, uh, cancer screening is not going to lead to more death in the next few weeks or next few months. Right. Those consequences will happen. I mean, the failure to do screening now will have consequences a year from now and two years from now and three years from now and that kind of mortality. Sure. COVID-19 consequences we see on a weekly basis. And suicide is another uh, thing that we sort of a rare thing that we also see at such short term notice. But uh, most other things is much more long term consequences that we are sort of now stuck in. Another thing is uh, some of my colleagues at CDC uh, wrote uh, a few weeks ago a, a paper showing that the vaccination rate of children has plummeted yeah. way, way down. And of course, as long as the lockdown is in place, the lockdown doesn't only protect from COVID-19, it also protects from the spread of other infectious diseases like measles or uh, meningococcal disease, etc. So we don't see any increase in that right now. But my fear is that once the lockdown is lifted, we have to be very careful about uh, outbreaks of uh, childhood diseases like measles. And we have to really make sure that uh, the vaccinations of children are being catching up with that when the lockdown is lifted. I'd like to pick up on something you said about your work at the CDC. Obviously, you've been involved in the evaluation of many of the vaccine trials. The MRA vaccines have not had a huge amount of success attacking coronavirus. We haven't had a successful vaccine for AIDS. We haven't had one for SARS. We haven't had one for MERS. It seems the politicians are sitting on the back of their heels, hoping that by not going for herd immunity, they will have a vaccine sooner than later. What are the odds of that? How is it looking from your perspective? So I serve on the committee to evaluate uh, vaccine safety, the CDC committee to evaluate the safety of any future COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, We have had one meeting so far, but uh, that's that's because we don't have any vaccines to evaluate yet. (laughs) Sure. Uh, there are dozens of vaccines that are in the in the pipeline in the sense that they are developing them. Most of them will not be successful, that's for sure. Hopefully, there will be one or two that are successful, that both have efficacy and that is safe, so it doesn't have any bad side, side effects. But we don't know. I mean, you pointed out that uh, with age, we have tried to get a vaccine for a long time. We still don't have a good vaccine. And the same for many other diseases. So for some diseases, we have very good vaccines, uh, like measles. Uh, for some, we have vaccines, but they're not great. Like the influenza vaccine is not a great vaccine. Uh, some years it works fine, and other years it works less good. I don't dare to make a guess of a timeline because 
if we're lucky, we'll have we'll have one sometime in 2021. But uh, if we're unlucky, it might take many, many years, or we might never have a vaccine. And if we're unlucky, then those who have been pursuing herd immunity will come out much better, one would think. Uh, that would be my expectation, yes. I'm not optimistic about having a vaccine soon, but uh, I hope I'm wrong. I guarantee there are a bunch of politicians who agree with that, too. <laughs> yes. We're in a very strange place politically. Last week, as you know, many of the people who've been advocating for hard lockdowns despite the economic impacts also supported the large public protests. You're at Harvard, in many ways, the center of wokeism. What do you think will be the impact if we keep politicizing decisions that should be based on sober data analysis? I think it's a very strange situation we're in because the lockdown is most severely affecting those that are economically vulnerable, the working class. Because while people like you and me uh, have been ordered, at least I have been ordered to work from home, and we can work from home. Uh, journalists can work from home. Politicians can, in most cases, work from home, etc. Uh, most people in the working class cannot work from home. So either they are working uh, the normal jobs and they are being exposed to COVID-19, or they have been laid off. The consequence of the lockdown, the burden falls unproportionately on the working class, on the economically vulnerable. And because of the nature of infectious diseases, even more so among the urban population who lives in New York City, for example, because like with most infectious diseases, uh, they spread more easily in an urban setting than in a, in a rural area. So uh, the urban poor are the ones that are mostly hit by the lockdown. So in essence, uh, what the politicians and the media are doing, the young college kids, which are very, very low risk for COVID-19, are protected. Young professionals who can work from home are also with low risk are protected. And then the ones who take up the burden of generating herd immunity are the working class, the urban poor, etc., it's a very, very sad uh, result of this lockdown on those that, uh, groups of the society that are most vulnerable. It's sort of hard to imagine that anybody can be pro-lockdown, like a complete universal lockdown, and at the same time uh, sympathetic to the most vulnerable, economically most vulnerable people in society, and especially those in urban areas. Do you think it's just a matter of political expedience? I know something about uh, infectious diseases and about disease outbreak, but the politics of, uh, <laughs> of COVID-19 uh, is startling and is something I don't understand. You've been very forward in your approach to not having lockdowns and searching for herd immunity. How has this been accepted among your colleagues? In Sweden, I think the majority of infectious disease technologists are in favor of the age-based approach that the government is pursuing. I think there's only one infectious disease technologist who has been sort of a vocal opponent to it. So there, there's sort of consensus in the scientific community. When I tried to publish uh, these uh, articles about with these thoughts in the English language press, uh, I have been rejected several times. So I was hmm. not being successful in uh, getting my thoughts out there uh, in the media. Among my colleagues uh, that I talked to more informally, I have not heard objections to it. And there are many people who agree with me about the wisdom of doing an age-based uh, approach to COVID-19. But they're not willing to say it publicly. Uh, either that or they are not uh, able to, as I wasn't able to. 
I mean, I, I was able to in, in Sweden, but of course they can't write in Swedish. So, uh, so I don't know to what extent uh, they have tried or not. Are you at all concerned about the lack of social distancing we've seen recently, even though it's with the youth? What do you think is going to happen just with some of the large protests we've seen of late? So my teenage son, he plays basketball with his friends. I'm not concerned about that. I'm not concerned about young people going to the beach to uh, go to protests, uh, whether it's a protest against the lockdown or or, uh, protest against racism. I'm not concerned about that from a public health perspective. Uh, The young people are not at high risk. I think they're sort of doing a, a service to society by helping generate herd immunity. I would be very concerned if, uh, if suddenly the 70-year-olds will go out there <laughs> and protest, uh, no matter what they're protesting. I don't think they should do that. That would be very concerning. And they will do a disservice both to, they, to themselves. But if elderly people did that, they will also do a disservice to society by filling up the hospitals, sure. increasing that burden. So they should be very careful and stay home. There are many similarities to the current Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 with how the disease is evolving now. If you lay out a correlation between the data sets, it's a bit frightening, actually. It's quite a tight correlation. Now, again, correlation is not causation. One of the signifying factors of the 1918 pandemic was a very large second wave that happened in the fall. What do you think of the odds of a second wave here with COVID-19? That's, of course, always hard to predict, but... In those places where there has been a severe lockdown, when the lockdown is lifted, I expect the COVID-19 to reemerge. Sure. Uh, if the lockdown is continued, I think it will continue to be held at the low level. That's sort of the nature of things. In places like Sweden, uh, where herd immunity is being built up, uh, I think there's a good chance of not having a, a, a second wave. Now, one thing we don't know with COVID-19, if there's also a seasonality to it. Sure. So we don't know that, I mean, we have seen a decrease in North America and Europe uh, in most countries. And uh, part of that decrease, I think, is due to the to the social distancing measures that's been taken. But there might be a part that's due to seasonality. We don't know. So we don't know if the summers are easier than the, the winters on, on this disease or not. We'll find out in a couple months, unfortunately. Yes, we will. <laughs> uh, Martin, final question for you. What recommendations would you give right now given that many of the U.S. states are still, even as we speak, in lockdown, what would you recommend? Well, I would recommend to uh, neither keep the universal uh, general lockdown nor to completely lift the lockdown. I would recommend that the elderly needs to be protected properly. So elderly should continue to self-isolate. They should have food delivered to them rather than going to the supermarket. Going outside is fine uh, for a walk and so on, but they should not mingle with other people. Nursing homes, we should ensure that the staff of nursing homes have been tested so that they are immune to COVID-19, so that do not spread, because they might be asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, but then spread it to uh, the elderly who are very vulnerable to COVID-19. In the nursing homes and similar settings, we should make sure that the staff has been tested to ensure that they have antibodies or that they were tested so that we know that they had the disease in the past. Uh, at the same time, people under the age of 50, should we should lift the lockdown for people under the age of 50, open the schools and uh, open universities and colleges and let uh, people uh, make sure that society is working properly. That's important for public health and, of course, also for, for other things. Uh, it's important for children to get an education or 
poor children is even more important to have the schools open because children of the well-educated, they will probably get homeschooling at this time, but the children of working class will, will get less of that. So the, the difference that it already exists in education will increase uh, through the lockdown. And actually, I think that if you take university students, it would be better if to have them at the universities where they will infect each other than to have them at home where they go out and then come home and infect the parents some of which might be in their 50s and 60s. So I think it's actually safer as a society to open the universities that will lead to fewer COVID-19 deaths. To me, as the lockdown is lifted, it's important to institute this very age-specific approach. Martin, it's been a true pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you.